0: Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th.
1: So, the gentleman to my left in the green shirt, you have the first question for the uh, senator.
2: My question is: Will you co-sponsor Senator Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill?
3: Why
1: not at this stage and I will tell you why I I will tell you why Essentially as I understand what Bernie is proposing it is a takeover of all medicine in, in In the United States, and I don't favor that what I favor is taking a couple of problems in the Obama bill and working those out. And this has to do with the individual uh, market, which is highly problematic. Well, I understand, I understand if you want to stay after this.
3: Can you reassure your constituents that your decision or your belief in a robust role in the? Uh, Syrian conflict is not influenced by special interests.
1: Well, I'll tell you what does influence me. I'll, I'll tell you what does influence me. The length of this war, the fact that a half a million people have been killed by a brutal dictator who does not belong to serve his people and should be ousted from office. I deeply believe that. You cannot let children... You cannot let children. the President, I'm telling you how I see it.
3: My concern, I'm going to be retiring soon, my my concern is Medicare and Social Security. But I'm also concerned about affordable care, health care. And I think the recent bill that was proposed was an abortion. To not do a pun, but I think it was ridiculous. So here's my question. There's going to be, Um, a proposal by uh, Senator Sanders. Um, Supposedly it's coming up later this month. It's basically single-payer. I I don't know the details of it. i read how he feels about things, so I have an idea. And you probably don't know the details either. I don't. But my question is, how how are you going to help support single-payer because all the proposals and the reworks that have been coming up with healthcare right now basically are just helping the health insurance industry. People like people like uh, children. and the healthcare people who provide healthcare—the doctors and the uh, medical facilities, the nurses, etc.—are not getting any breaks. But the healthcare industry is getting all the breaks. So my question again. How are you going to help support single-payer health care?
1: if single-payer health care is going to mean complete takeover by the government of all health care, I am not
3: there. Tonight in Beverly Hills, Senator Dianne Feinstein kicked off her bid for re election at a fundraiser.
2: Yeah, but protesters outside the Democrats' event made it clear that this is still a very divided party tonight. Kick on I, political reporter Dave Bryan is live in Beverly Hills with the latest. Dave.
3: Jeff and Lena Senator Feinstein certainly didn't waste any time in hitting the campaign uh, contribution trail after declaring she would run for reelection. There were a lot of Democrats who came here tonight to support her and to, to contribute to her campaign, including Eli Broad and many other prominent Los Angeles and Southern California residents. But there were also some Democrats here who were not so happy with Dianne Feinstein, and they brought up an issue that has been dividing the Democratic Party. A small but energetic crowd of protesters, including several Bernie Sanders Democrats, shouted at Senator Dianne Feinstein Tuesday night, who was headlining a fundraiser for her Senate re-election race inside this home in Beverly Hills. The protesters demanding that Feinstein endorse the Sanders bill for single-payer health care.
0: I absolutely think that her position on health care and not standing for Medicare for all does mean that she's out of touch with Democrats and young progressives in this country.
3: Feinstein's announcement on Monday that she'll run for her sixth term in the Senate at age 84 was greeted with immediate endorsements from Mayor Eric Garcetti, who was one of the Tuesday night fundraiser hosts, and from her Senate colleague Kamala Harris, and from plenty of California members of Congress like Ted Lou from. Torrance.
0: Today I'm here with David Hildebrand, a progressive candidate who is challenging Diane Feinstein in our Senate race. He supports Medicare for all and doing something about money and politics. Welcome David.
4: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your background, because you have a very interesting job that a lot of folks don't know about. You are a legislative analyst in Sacramento, and this is one of the most important and least recognized positions in government, in my opinion. Tell us a little bit about your job and how you think this might prepare you, give you a certain skill set for uh, working in the Senate.
4: Yeah, well, like you said, I'm a legislative analyst. Uh, i work for the state for over uh, six and six years doing that. Uh, my main uh, area right now is transportation, but I've been working around the legislature for about 10 years now in total. Um, I've worked on labor issues and uh, health care issues as well. Um, so basically what a legislative analyst does is is we get all the bills that affect, you know, whatever whatever subject area your agency works for. We get all the bills that affect that subject area. So right now as transportation and traffic safety is my concern uh, for the agency I'm working with. I get bills that have to do with that. Um, a lot of them are autonomous vehicle related or license plate related or registration or tax bills. So like the SB1 bill, the unpopular, semi-unpopular bill that just passed that raised the gas tax. I actually analyzed that bill through work. I um, do not have a position um, through work on that bill, just to specify that, which is another part of the job. But basically we look... Are you bills. allowed
0: to have positions? <laughs> uh,
4: not officially, no. Not Now, now outside on this uh, podcast, I, I definitely can take a position on the bill. I'm just saying as an official you know, state worker, we right. don't have a position. Uh, Our position is what the governor tells us it is. So as you can tell, you know, (laughs) going me from my campaigning, (laughs) I am very outspoken about my political beliefs at work. I'm completely the opposite because that is not the place for it. Um, Exactly. So basically, uh, SB1, uh, it's a little bit of a tangent, but basically I I appreciate the progressive tax they put for the VLF, meaning that uh, people with lower incomes and lower value cars pay less and people with higher incomes or higher-valued cars pay more. Um, But then when it comes to the gas tax, it's a regressive tax because poor people tend to drive more to get to work and back. They live farther out from big cities and drive into them, so they use more gas, and hence they pay a higher gas tax. Um, So these are things that were brought up as I was going through that process as well. Um, So basically... Just the general gist of the job is we get, we get a, a slurry of bills that comes in every, every session. Some can pop in earlier, some can pop in later. Most of them come in around the bill, bill um, deadline or introduction deadline, which has just passed, so we just got hit with a bunch of bills. Um, basically, they come to me. I talk to a lot of different people within my department, and we come to a conclusion on what the bill does. Um, how it fiscally and uh, um, impacts the state, what the policy issues have you know, to do with the state when it comes to impacts as well. So basically, is it a good idea, is it not a good idea, um, how much is it going to cost, um, is there actually a problem that they're solving? A lot of legislators um, get bills from interest groups that want to solve a problem that doesn't exist or they want to solve a problem while well, a pilot program is currently in place that's trying to figure out whether or not the solution that they're offering will actually fix that problem. Case in point, um, IIDs and vehicles are commonly referred to as breathalyzers. So basically that you blow into the breathalyzer before you can start your car and then it intervals while you're driving. Well. We had a pilot program going on for that, and um, it was in four counties, and that was the pilot program basically came to the conclusion that there was no um, lower rate of recidivism after they got that removed from their car and entered back into the general driving population. They did actually have just as high a recidivism rate as everyone else. So it actually Hmm. did not help with that at all, so then the companies that made those products wanted to push for a statewide institution (laughs) like that. And and of course, you know, they make, you know, however much money off of each installation and selling each product, but if it's not going to actually solve the problem, then we don't want those, you know, state-mandated, obviously. So right. that's, that's kind of like a, a good example of, of what happens. So you'll get interest groups who try to push bills through the legislature. Um, when we get fresh right. legislators in, um, they're very susceptible to this, and yep. and the staffers at the Capitol know more because of term limits. The staffers are actually there, and those interest groups are actually there for a lot longer than the legislators are. Oh, absolutely. So have, yeah. So you have a lobbyist, you know, who's worked around the Capitol for thirty years. And this legis- freshman legislator comes in, you know, un- unknowing and, you know, not up to up to speed with, you know, which different mm-hmm. interest groups are going to, you know, introduce what bills. And on top of that, whether those bills have been introduced and what happened with them. And then you also mm-hmm. have the uh, issue with the bill bill introduction deadline. So I have to give them a right. little bit of-, of leeway on that because basically you're telling these freshman legislators that come in – you got two months to get all your bills for this session or for this year, at least, in by this deadline. So all the right. staff, uh, possibly newer staff, uh, some of them probably worked for a previous legislator, have to put yep. all, all this stuff together, get all their bills written, sometimes in spot bill form, put those all forward by the certain deadline, and after that huge flurry, then they figure out what's uh, what's actually you know going to go forward. So right. I call that the uh, throwing the pot of spaghetti against the wall and seeing which noodles <laughs> fit the wall. <laughs>
5: yeah.
4: So, and that's really how it is because most bills will die, you know, yep. in, in committee or in uh, absolutely, or an appropriations committee or the policy committee. So,
0: and you're right about the lobbyists being there for quite some time. And you know, I worked as a public policy director. For a nonprofit, um, I was mm-hmm. a volunteer on the board of directors, and I saw that quite a bit. And in fact, you would see some of these folks would would target the freshman legislators. They would, they would go through and contact them one by one to see who would be willing to sponsor their bill. And most of the time, they'd have something pre-written. So they would just come exactly. in and say, here's our bill. Are you interested? Sort of a thing. Um, so it's a problem, you know. And you know, nonprofits work in a similar way. They don't necessarily pre-write the bills, but they'll approach with ideas. Like, for example, I did a human trafficking bill that was uh, sponsored by Brownlee that actually was signed into law by Schwarzenegger. So I went through that whole process. It's an interesting process. You know you have an interest in corporate reform and financing. What what are some of your ideas? <laughs>
4: So obviously in the long run, and I say the long run because I'm a realist, um, but we need to end Citizens United. We need that repealed, and we need uh, publicly funded right. elections. So there's a lot of different ways to uh, to put publicly funded elections in place, but the way I like it is basically you would have uh, an account that basically would be a public funding account that you would fill that account with funds from whatever you know, tax program or voluntary Mm -hmm. donations, you know, whatever way you wanted to set it up, um, there's obviously... Every system's going to have its flaws. Um, So, like, in a system where you had, basically, let's say, uh, utopian-wise, you know, you have one one account, and everyone who wants to donate to, quote-unquote, political elections can all donate to that account. So you can have, you know you know, me donate my $27, but then you have Chevron donate their $10 million to this little political account. So even though you have that single account for everyone to donate into voluntarily, there's still not public knowledge of who donates to that account and how much. You go on to, you know, you go forward, you get elected and whatnot. You're in office, and then you know Chevron's donated $10 million to the account, which isn't your account, but it's still the account. So that mm-hmm. gives them, you know, more power when it comes to electoral politics because they can still pull that funding. And we need funds to print flyers, you know, stickers, T-shirts, which I have all those buttons, uh, you know, get air time. So we need that money. So that's still holding that over the head of candidates, even though it's more generalized. Mm-hmm. So that's mm. an issue there. So what I like, what I'd like to see is maybe a, a limit on personal donations that's lower and more feasible for you know lower lower income people to donate. Like I can't donate the max to my favorite candidates. That's not even feasible. Right. For me. And you know I'm like solidly middle class for California even with my current income, and I can't donate that much. I've made made a commitment for 2018 not to promote or endorse any candidates who, who take any corporate donations. So I'm asking others in the progressive movement to do the same. A lot of people are doing it. They will refuse to vote for or endorse or support or promote any candidates that take corporate donations. Now, there's a few candidates uh, that come to mind when I say that. Um, Delaine mm-hmm. Easton... She accepted corporate donations early on in her campaign, but then she decided she wanted to go corporate-free, so she returned all those corporate donations. So she is now a corporate-free hmm. candidate. So I do, I ha- have endorsed her, and I do support her in her campaign. Um, in that race, there's also Michael Bracamontes. He does not accept any corporate donations. I like to throw that out there as well. He's a lesser-known candidate, but he is out there campaigning. Um I did endorse uh, Delane officially, though, early on. Okay. And then uh, there's Dave Jones, who is an awesome guy, great politician, votes the right way for the most part, and he is not accepting some corporate donations from some certain industries. So I, hmm. I think that's laudable, but for 2018, I'm I'm being very strict on who I'm voting for. So he will not get my vote if if he has been accepting corporate donations. I actually have not looked into all those donations, but that that is my thing for this uh, election cycle. Um, right. Tony Thurmond, he is running for superintendent of public instruction. Great guy. I believe he will do a great job. He does accept corporate donations. So that's another mm. one where it's like, well, I'd love to vote for this guy. I'd love to support this guy, but unfortunately... He does accept corporate donations, so I, I won't be supporting him, endorsing him, or voting for him in this election cycle. Um, right. So that's kind of what I'm – that's, like, basically the movement I'm trying to phone because we know it's going to be a battle to get Citizens United revoked. Um, there's groups out there that have been doing this for a year. Common Cause has been doing this for a long time, and they haven't been able to win this battle. We have uh, – Right.
0: Right. American Promise.
4: Wolfpack has been doing this, and they've got, like, a basically non-binding agreements from five different states that they'll say that they will promise to do this in the future, basically. And then we have moved to amend who has their own way of, of going about it as well, and they're trying to get Citizens United repealed as well. Um, my thing is I, I feel that we need to legislate as well as protect that in the court so and the nature of the beast right now is we have a conservative court so no matter right. which way you go about it it's going to be a battle and we're seeing some very important things being decided um, by the supreme court now so that'll give us a flavor of how they're going to rule going forward but basically right now we have the Janus fair share juice from unions which Long story short, basically it will unfund all the unions. Um, The California rule on pensions case is going forward before the Supreme Court. And what that does is it basically says uh, the California rule basically protects union contracts with the state. So if the state said, hey, we will pay you this much when you retire, then the state is required by law to follow the contract that they agreed to and pay you that much well, this case would actually remove the California rule and instead would pay uh, pensioners a retirement that's uh, reasonable, and that word reasonable is left undefined. Yeah, so the state exactly. Can basically define whatever they want as reasonable and pay that amount. So, so these are two cases that are coming up that are really going to show right. us the flavor of, of what we're going to have going forward. So, so it's uh, unfortunate that we're in this situation. Um, I wish that it was a case that, that the Supreme Court was a, a truly non-biased, you know, non-party-affiliated you know, mechanism, but unfortunately we all know that's not the reality. We have conservative right. and members who aren't really looking as much at the law. So the legislature may write the law, but at the end of the day, they have the final say for those cases that go before them judicial activism in a different way. So it's not the stuff the Republicans are against. It's the fact that they really shouldn't be a biased body. They should be voting on the issues well, based on just the law.
0: I agree with that. But if you look at the history of SCOTUS, they really are more more conservative decisions than they have been liberal um, across the board. Uh, yeah. There's a great group called American Promise um, that is working on adding the 28th Amendment to the Constitution that would overturn Citizens United. It's run by uh, Jeff Clements, who is an attorney that did the amicus brief against Citizens United. Um, You might want to look into his group. It's very interesting work he's doing.
4: Like I was mentioning, because that battle is going to be so hard fought and it might take a while, that's why I'm saying we need to come at this from an activist standpoint. And instead of um, just Fighting the battle to change the laws, we need to show these legislators the way. Basically, I mean, we had Delaney. Oh, I agree, yeah. Being a corporate candidate to not because of the pressure she was getting from the left, because she is mm-hmm. the more left candidate among the uh, the four uh, top tier candidates they're calling them in the governor's race right. in California. She is, you know, the the furthest left. So the one for single payer that's actually going to not change her mind about it. So, right. you know, you have people like that that we actually have pressured. We have pressured people like Dave Jones
5: Absolutely. who's given up
4: a lot of corporate donations from a lot of different specific industries. So it is having an impact by telling people, you know, we're not going to vote for you if you accept money mm-hmm. from these corporations. Well, I, need to, I think we need to spread that to all corporations and then, you know, have that a holistic non-corporate, you know, donation candidate for each race that people can have that chance to vote
0: for. 100%. And in fact, I think what happened in Texas last night is a harbinger of what you're discussing. A lot of the candidates that won were the ones that took less money, and some of the big candidates that had taken the most amounts of money actually lost their primaries last night. So it's interesting it's interesting that that is the power of the vote. That is the power of democracy, and I'm glad that folks are starting to realize that, and they're saying, no, I don't want this, so I'm not going to support this person. And you have, um, you're have, you completely correct in that. I think it will uh, force more change. I did want to – you brought up uh, the union issues that are uh, occurring right now. We've got the SCOTUS uh, case that you're discussing – But there's also this little-known bill that was introduced by the GOP House members last year that would create a federal right-to-work law. So this would be devastating for unions and for the audience members that aren't clear on what a right-to-work law is. It's the opposite of what it sounds like. It basically is designed to weaken unions. It limits the collective bargaining rights. It allows non-union members to participate in union contracts without paying dues so they have less money coming. There's a host of things that it does, and it would be absolutely devastating for labor. Um, have you been following this at all, and what ideas do you have to sort of thwart
4: this? Um, well, obviously, right-to-work has passed, and basically the red states are almost all right-to-work states now. There's actually a handy map online you can look up. You can just type in right-to-work states map, and it comes up on Google. Um, so they basically got the majority, you know, acreage-wise, basically, of the country is already, you know, basically right to work. Um, so they're going for the final blow. Um, at the end of the day, I mean, what we're dealing with right now is we have both branches, um, you know, legislative and executive are, are Republican-controlled to the point where they can pass whatever they want in most aspects. The Supreme Court is Republican-controlled. Or conservative, if you want to, you know, be. We have to deal with the reality that we're in, and that is, we are a majority Republican in both the House and the Senate. Um, we have a Republican president. We have a Republican Supreme Court. So we are very much in a vulnerable area right now. Um, We can't do a lot to stop stuff. We can filibuster and go that route and whatnot, and we can make sure that Democrats aren't voting with Republicans on certain bills where their votes would make a difference. At the end of the day, we need to make sure we win in 2018 to stop them from going forward. And that means not just winning, you know, the blue no matter who type of winning. Right. Winning people who will actually not vote for that. So I live two blocks from from Ami Barrett's district. He's like... He's one of the um, Democrats that basically votes pro-Trump and pro-Republican mm-hmm. on most things. So I'm, I live two blocks, so that, that tells you, you know, how this is not California. Like, I live in Sacramento, right. liberal California, and he's voting with Trump and with Republicans mm-hmm. on a lot of different things. So we can't just elect people who aren't going to fight. And that's right. what I think we're seeing a lot is we're seeing those uh, types of types of Democrats um, basically Mm -hmm. conservative Democrats who vote Republican. So at the end of the day, we're in a very vulnerable situation, which really should inspire people to go to the polls and elect in Democrats to stop any legislation going forward. We're still going to have the problem on the Supreme Court level, you know, for a number of years until someone gets replaced, you know, a conservative on the court gets replaced, which may be some time. So basically we have to tread lightly at the same time, fighting as hard as we can And it's kind of a sticky situation that that we can't really do much about at this point except in electoral politics and make sure the legislature is full of people who actually want to represent the people and protect our issues.
0: Right. I mean, I agree with you. At this particular junction, it seems to me why vote for a Democrat that's siding with Republicans all of the time? You might as well run a more progressive candidate and hope to win because even if, if the guy that's always siding with the Republicans wins, that's, you might as well have a Republican place like Joe Manchin, Manchin, Mark Warner, these guys to me are no different. I, yeah. you know, they pretty much rubber stamp everything the GOP is doing. And, you and know, Joe Manchin it- has what an A rating from the NRA. They complain about Bernie Sanders D minus rating, but they don't go after Joe Manchin or Heidi uh, for their A ratings from the NRA. It's, it's, gotten a little bit crazy to me
5: oh
4: yeah and that's because we have this gang or tribal mentality where as long as you're wearing the right color shirt then you're good with us and that's what we have to get around and the thing is california is a really interesting state electorally because we have what's called a top two primary and basically what that is is the top two vote getters in the primary despite what party they may be go forward so since we're a democratic leaning state Currently, in this election, there is not a single statewide office with a viable Republican running for that office. Exactly. It doesn't matter who you vote for in the primary. You're going to be voting for a Democrat if you're voting for one of the viable candidates. So if you're going to put two Democrats forward, put at least one progressive forward. Take that chance to put that one progressive who's un- you know underfunded quote quote unquote like like me versus feinstein she she dropped herself 5 million dollars at the beginning of the year just because and right and you know I could never do that and that's basically what that was was a shot over the bow at her opponent saying I can do this forever and I have all the money in the world well that's the mm-hmm. opposite of the approach that I'm taking I'm taking a completely you know you know working class approach of we're going to see how much money we get in we're going to use that money wisely and we're going to push forward, and I've traveled the whole state and done that. But the point is, is getting those progressives into the top two, and then making a yeah. choice. Because now you really don't have any threat. You have a progressive versus an established, you know, corporate politician. Now it doesn't matter who you vote for if you're a Democrat. If they're both Democrats and they're both, you know, going to vote well, and one's going to vote better and more in line with the people of California. Then you would vote for that one, despite how much money they have. So unfortunately, right. people determine viability by money. So even though I've traveled the entire state, which is more than some of the the establishment candidates have done, I don't know if um, Feinstein's come back from D.C. yet to to actually campaign. But she spent, you know, I think over three million dollars, and I haven't heard a peep from her campaign wise I haven't yeah. seen any mailers, no commercials, <laughs> well, she was no she was
0: down about. in San Diego, so. Uh...
4: I was going to say, she's been showing up at other events like e-boards and stuff as well.
0: Right. Um, I wanted to ask you, David, you did not. You chose not to participate in the CalDEM endorsement process. What was the thought behind that?
5: So
4: there's a few different strategic reasons, and there's a, a moral reason, or not necessarily a moral reason, but a, a common sense reason. And the strategic reasons are a lot of people don't realize that it costs money to apply to be considered for endorsement, so you have right. to pay it's the Democratic thousand? Party.
0: It's a thousand
1: dollars.
4: Yeah, you have to pay the Democratic Party a thousand dollars just to apply, um, get three hundred delegate signatures. Which I could have done that. That would have been that wouldn't have been a problem. I could have got those signatures. But but the issue is is once you make that put that application for there's no promise. You know, you're going to get endorsed. Obviously, you're just part of the system. So then if you're going to get mm-hmm. endorsed then, or you're going to go for the endorsement, then you'd want to table, the ele- like have an official table at the election or the, uh, the convention. So you would get a table which is $1,500 to table at convention. So now that's $2,500 that you've just spent. So for a grassroots right. campaign that's raised 25000 basically, that's a huge chunk of cash run in a race Mm -hmm. that you know already is fixed, that you're going to lose. You already it was going to be a no endorsement race anyway. So why sink $2,500 into a race that's going to end up with no endorsement? The best thing we could have done is what we did, which is basically let um, the top two, you know, in the Democratic Party realm, Mm Bayleon and Weinstein, duke it out and both lose. So, and that's what we did is we sat back and let that happen. Now, the one of the other progressive uh, candidates in the race, um, Pat Harris, he did get on the ballot.
5: He only ended right. up
4: with like 150 votes. So, even though he got on the ballot and spent the money, he tabled, you know, he, he worked for it. And he actually uh, had to challenge the Democratic Party to get on the ballot. He ended up with right. 150 votes. No endorsement, that was the other option between – there's four options, the three candidates and no endorsement. No endorsement got 98 votes. So so that's what we were looking at going into it. His campaign has raised a lot more than ours has, so that's, that's one thing. But, but he was willing to go that route, whereas we were not willing to do that. And then on the ideological front, I really don't understand what a democratic party in a top two system is endorsing before the primary. I just,
5: mm-hmm.
4: I just can't understand that. And that's basically like, that's a higher level answer is we have all these races with all Democrats and we're going through these, you know, battles and spending all this money inside the party when the voters are going to decide either way in the primary who's going forward. So now let's say, the party endorsed De Leon and then then something came out, you know, that hurt his campaign and he got buried and then it ended up being Feinstein and me and the general. Well, now Feinstein and me are like, well, they, you know, pushed me over for De Leon for their endorsement before. So now there's those hard feelings. And now, you know, who are you going to, what are you going to do now, basically for the, on the party front? So I really think the party should stay out of these endorsement uh, processes for statewide races in the top two primary. Now, there's obviously a lot of other races in the state going on that that do have viable Republicans in them that are races and the Republicans have a better chance of winning. Then it's important to get that endorsement, that extra money and that extra advertisement from the party. But for the statewide Mm -hmm. races, I just really think they shouldn't have a part in that.
0: Okay, that's um, that's interesting. What would you think of those that might suggest that the reason for doing the endorsement process isn't necessarily for the endorsement itself, but perhaps it's because you get a, a wider audience, meaning that all of the folks that went to Caldam down in San Diego wasn't just delegates. You had a, you had an audience there that you might have been able to uh, reach that might not have known you beforehand. Is that do you think that's a viable counter or no?
4: Yeah, so so there's a lot of people there with booths and whatnot. I actually took a lot of time at those booths instead of going and speaking to the General Assembly and going after that vote. Instead of that, oh, okay. I was spending time actually speaking to people who were there representing different organizations at their booths. I actually spent a oh, lot of great. time at, okay. Can- at Canadem's booth, which is the new cannabis club for the Democratic Party, um, Brownie right. Mary's the more established uh, um, cannabis group, and then the Canadems are the newer one. So I actually did, instead of going and fighting over something I couldn't win, I did in like a 40-minute interview with Canadems, which they're going to post later on. So I actually got more airtime from convention doing that, you know, podcast kind of like I'm doing here, that I would if right, I right. was on the stage. And when you go into the general assembly. That is, the majority of that is delegates. They do give out observer passes, but those are limited. Um, Mm -hmm. Most of the people that are at the convention are very much in the know. They know who's running in the race. So, I mean, at the end of the day, in that room, while they're doing the votes and the speeches and everything, that is a very, very select crowd. So the, the, the thing that I could say would have possibly benefited me is when they advertise, or not when they advertise, but when they write articles about what went down at the convention, then my name might have popped up a couple times in those, but I actually did review all the articles that came out about how De Leon you know, stopped Feinstein from getting the endorsement or however they wanted to you know, word it or, or sell it. Um, mm-hmm. And I looked in those, and I think I saw Pat Harris, who actually did run in, in the election in that race, mentioned maybe in, in one of those articles. So we actually have a, a press guy that works, uh, volunteers for that campaign. And we were going for like months last year, sending out hundreds of press releases to different parts of the state or different news agencies. And the news agencies will not pick them up. They have no interest in, in, in our campaign. They have no interest in what we're doing. Um, they consider us non-viable. So then that shows right. you the rest of the democratic process is name recognition. So we've been doing a lot to get that, but right. it's not happening through you know the mainstream media or even smaller media.
0: Let's talk about the differences between free trade and fair trade. Free trade, in my opinion, really is not free because it's designed to benefit large multinational corporations at the expense of labor and the environment. Um, how do you think we can go about renegotiating agreements such as NAFTA to become more fair trade versus free trade? Do you think that's something you you could uh, work on in the Senate?
4: Yes, it is. Um, actually, that's one of the jobs of a U.S. senator is to work on treaties. Um, mm-hmm. So that would include that. Basically, I'm against the uh, current trade agreements, the multilateral trade agreements that we've made in NAFTA, and then the TPP, which obviously didn't pass but may still pass. Right. Um, yeah. So, so we need to have people at the table to stand up for workers. So when you um, push people out like unions and, and interest groups that represent workers out of the process, that's problematic. And we've had you know, high-level Democrats working on the TPP who ignored the needs of workers, um, of unions, of people on the ground to try and pass the TPP. They ignore them. So when you have all corporations at the table writing the language for the TPP or whatever other you know uh, treaty or or trade plan you want to do, th- then that's the end result. Is you're going to get a corporate-friendly trade trade deal. And when people are more worried about money and corporate donations than they are about the people, then that's what you end up with. So at the end of the day, it goes all the way back to the initial conversation we had which is about getting corporate money out of politics, um, getting people in office that don't accept corporate uh, money, and getting people in office who want to represent their constituents and not just get checks from corporations. When you have those kind of people in office, that's when they make the correct decisions on things like trade agreements where they Mm -hmm. look at the the aspect or from the aspect of somebody who's in the working class. How does this affect workers?
5: When you have...
4: you know when you're cutting away at at workers wages and benefits to try and compete with other nations that are impoverished you're going to lose i mean that's oh, the workers are going to lose and with nafta it's not just like oh nafta destroyed you know the american workers which is true it also destroyed the mexican working or the mexican did, economy indeed. for workers
0: yeah it, i did it had
4: a lot of issues in agriculture down there a lot of farmers moved to cities and tried to work there and they also yeah. a lot of farmers uh, immigrated to the U.S. both legally and illegally, and worked here. So now you have those workers here, who are actually offering a valuable agricultural, you know, labor force to us. But now we're attacking them, and that's I'm getting kind of on a tangent on the other other end of the problem. <laughs> but, but that problem was caused by us through through NAFTA. Yeah. Right? We can't just you know. We can't blame immigrants for coming here when we cause that problem to happen. So I think we need to focus on what's going to happen with the people when these trade agreements are passed and actually have someone at the table or multiple people, better yet, at the table to represent the working class.
0: What are some of your thoughts or ideas for reforming our foreign policy?
4: In the military-industrial complex. Uh, that yep. is one of my number one agenda items. And what that means is we have hundreds of bases overseas. And a majority of our bases are in places like the Middle East where we have no actual interest in defense. Um, we go to wars both indirectly and directly. And what I mean by that is we, we sell arms directly to places like Saudi Arabia that are attacking yeah. We are fueling yeah. Saudi Arabia's planes right now so they can go bomb mm-hmm. children. Women and children, and you know, just innocent people in general in Yemen. Um, we're causing a great catastrophe there through our through our involvement and our support of that. And the weapons themselves are weapons that we sold to Saudi Arabia. Right. So this is a, a huge moral issue for our country, and and it creates more enemies. So that's only you know one conflict in Syria. We are stirring the pot in Syria. We have a recent article came out about how a lot of the weapons that ISIS is using as our weapons fronts on that issue. Some people say we gave them to them directly. Other people in this article I read said basically that we armed one rebel group and that rebel group got taken out by ISIS and now all the weapons from that rebel group belong to ISIS and they're using them against other groups. So basically... In Syria, we have six or seven different active militant groups all fighting in the same battle with you know, alliances today and not tomorrow, and we just need to stay out. A lot of people look for a solution in problems like this where there literally is no good solution, and they're afraid to back away from that because they're afraid to say, you know, we, we can't help, we're just going to make it worse. they they want to solve the issue that's their thing is they they want a solution for an issue that has no solution the only solution for that issue is to let it play out and it's depressing and it's sad and innocent people are dying but you don't you know to end the conflict you don't add more more fuel to that conflict and that's what we're basically doing is we're adding more fuel
0: I agree. I agree. Selling arms to these folks is a really bad idea. And look, there's been points when we've armed groups like, like Al-Qaeda, even Al-Qaeda, because we thought the regime change would be more friendly to, to empire. When I say empire, I mean corporate America. Yeah. You know, there's no morality here, in my opinion. And I do think the permanent war economy is really a big driver of all of this foreign policy that we're engaged in that's just blowing up on our faces.
4: Yeah, exactly. And and I mean when you have people on on quote unquote on our side in the Democratic Party like Feinstein who are voting yes on a seven hundred billion dollar war budget, when Trump's right. the guy in office and that's more right. than he asked for, that's really problematic. That's more than problematic. That's just straight up disgusting. Because you are yeah. giving, it, it's not like, you know, and, and it was bad enough what Obama was doing in office and getting away with, you know, with basically the same exact conflicts that Trump's dealing with. It's yeah. bad enough giving money to to Obama to go and bomb, you know, other countries. But then Trump gets in office, that's like, there's no argument. It's worse. It's, to me, it's revealing to these politicians or revealing to the public what these politicians are actually about, and it's not about representing mm-hmm. us. It's about representing corporations, the military-industrial complex especially. It's about raking in corporate donations. It's not about the working class. It's about that. So, and that's the end of the day. Is why you know, you, you know, Joe Schmo running for office, not accepting corporate donations, is still a better option than anyone else, even if they don't have experience
0: let me ask you a second about marijuana we've legalized it recreationally now in california and a handful of other states have also done this yet at the federal level it's still illegal Uh, how do you see this playing out is this going to be corrected by a federal law or is it going to end up before scotus what are your thoughts on that
4: I actually think that it's going to end up being legalized on the federal level through through Congress and the president signing it. Whether it'll be Trump or not, you know, Trump's highly. I, I think Trump actually might sign it, but I think it won't <laughs> get to him because in the current you know situation, we have you know Republican control of the legislature. So that's probably not going to happen while he's in office, but I do think at the end of the day, enough states are going to legalize medical and recreational marijuana that it's just going to be basically game over. It's going to be kind of like the right to work thing, only a positive version of it where enough states are going to become legalized that it's just not going to make any sense for the federal government to do anything because they just won't have the resources to crack down on everyone. Um, so when it comes to cannabis legalization, that actually ties into so many different things. It's, it's so thick. The spiel I basically give is I want to legalize cannabis um, across the board, meaning yes, we'll tax uh, and regulate it and fund programs for that. But what I mean by across the board, it means you can grow it, you can distribute it, you can sell it. No part of that process is going to be illegal. That I want to legalize the use of all their, other drugs. And that kind of throws people back, They're like, you want to legalize cocaine? It's like, no, I didn't say that. Uh, we can still go after dealers and manufacturers and distributors. Um, but what I want to do is instead of arresting people who maybe have a cocaine or heroin um, addiction, I want to put those people into programs. Our jails are full. Um, if we Basically, if we legalize cannabis, we would end the majority of our mass incarceration problems we legalize mm-hmm. the use of all drugs, we'd empty out so many jails, it'd be ridiculous. We could close down all the private prisons and actually make private prisons banned in the United States. So this is an mm-hmm. issue that, that goes beyond just, you know, hey, I want to smoke a joint because I feel like it. It, it has so many different impacts across the board to, to policing, you know, in, in equal policing where, you know, you have a, a white male walking on the street with a joint, the cop tells them to put that out versus, you know, let's say in Alabama, you know, you have a, a black guy walking on the street with a joint. He's arrested, mm-hmm. goes through the court process, gets thrown in jail, you know, for possibly decades, depending on, on what they try to hit him on. And then when he does get out, no job training programs. He's, he's right. got a criminal record now, so he can't get a job. So even if he's in there a couple of years, he can't get a job now because they go back and say, you know, Basically, oh, he's a, he's a convict, and they throw his application away. So my, my deal is basically legalize cannabis, retroactively expunge the records of people who have cannabis and other drug convictions that are nonviolent, mm-hmm. not connected to any other crimes. Um, basically, what will happen is when they leave jail, this will happen automatically, because currently you can get that done, uh, especially in California, but you have to pay for getting that done. So then people can't pay right. for it. On top of that, job programs, which goes into my uh, tuition-free college and trade school um, platform. Basically, Mm -hmm. um, we have people who are engineers, uh, carpenters, electricians, plumbers. Those jobs aren't going to be able to be sent overseas or outsourced. Those jobs are here. So we need to train people for those jobs as well as people going to, like, universities and whatnot to have a specialized education for whatever other job or career they might go after. So we don't need those people to go, you know, or to graduate with the burden of debt either who are going into carpentry. I mean, my dad's a carpenter, a union carpenter, and he has mm-hmm. been my whole life. So, so we have those jobs. that are actually hurting for workers now. We need to train those people. And then when these uh, uh, ex, ex-cons, which are now no longer convicts and no longer right. criminals because they've been expunged, when they get out of jail, now you're going to have all these people basically on the street or living with their family. So if they could go to a tuition-free trade school and learn a trade, now they're in the job market. Now they're not, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not a recidivism problem where you let someone out of jail and then they have no options. And then Mm -hmm. they're in jail again, you know, by the next year because they didn't have, you didn't give them any options to earn a living to support their family, to support themselves. So they end up going back to, you know, worse crimes because they got in jail just for smoking a joint or possession or, or whatnot, but now they have a criminal record and they can't get a job, so now it's even worse. So now they have to resort right. to something worse just to make ends meet. And that's not a position that they're putting themselves in. That's a position that we're putting them in.
0: I am actually, for legalizing all drugs, I think I'm I probably pretty leftist on that area because I do see it as a public health problem, and I don't see... I don't see us winning the drug war. I think people that take drugs are going to take them, whether they're legal or not. If you legalize heroin tomorrow, I would not start shooting it up. It's not going to happen. So, you know, I mean, I'm more like a going like with the Amsterdam approach to things. I think it would be a hard way to toe in this country to get uh, folks on board with that. But I think marijuana is definitely a good place to start, and it's certainly – certainly overfilled our prisons and for what you're right this is silly marijuana convictions and they're they're in their three strikes 30 years 20 years to life it's crazy to me um so black lives matters activists have have targeted the Los Angeles police department as one of the most brutal police forces out there um, they call them murderous in fact and yet we hardly make the news for the offenses that occur in LA or at least certainly not on the level that you would see with uh, happening in Ferguson for example uh, so in two, 2016, we had a BLM activist, uh, her name's Jasmine Richards, that was convicted of felony lynching, lynching. Now, have you followed this story at all?
6: We go now to Pasadena, California, where a Black Lives Matter organizer is facing up to four years in state prison after she was convicted of a rarely known statute in California law known up until recently as felony lynching. Jasmine Richards was arrested and charged with felony lynching last September, after police accused her of trying to de-arrest someone during a peace march in Pasadena last August. At the time, Jasmine was one of the key organizers demanding justice for Kendrick McDade, a 19-year-old African-American who was shot and killed by Pasadena police in 2012. The arrest and jailing of a young black female activist on charges of felony lynching sparked a firestorm of controversy. In fact, the law's name was so controversial that less than two months before Jasmine was arrested, California Governor Jerry Brown signed into law legislation removing the word lynching from the penal code. Despite the,
4: I actually have not heard that one yet.
6: It's so perverse.
0: So here's you have a lynching, lynching law that's designed to stop white people from taking a black person and lynching them. That's the point of this law. Yet they decided to convict her, a Black Lives Matter activist under the same law because she was at a protest uh, just to give you a rundown she was at a protest and it was a very it wasn't a riot it wasn't a crazy protest there wasn't hardly anybody there but there was somebody that got swept up in in with the protesters and she was trying to let the police know that no this person is not a protester you shouldn't be arresting her and she was trying to intervene on her behalf and this is what happened it's this is a crazy thing to me. Uh, so, what are what are your thoughts about how we deal with police brutality in the state? Uh, you know, California is supposed to be this very progressive state, but we do have a serious problem. It hasn't necessarily been corrected since Rodney King. Uh, you know, and it, but it doesn't get talked about either.
4: So, we need some serious police reform, uh, not just in the state, but nationwide, and not just in Los Angeles, obviously. Um, I believe it's Utah right. that actually went through a serious retraining program and, as far as I know, haven't had a single instance of a police shooting. Yeah, so that's something to look into. Uh, Michael Bracamontes was really good on that point as well. Um, but basically mm-hmm. what I want to see is, is not only cultural training and whatnot because a lot of that gets laughed off. I know that in every job you're going to have people who shouldn't be working that job and who are just generally right. bad people we have the blue line that, that, you know, they don't cross that line because, you know, we we have to get each other's back sort of mentality. Well, Mm -hmm. you need to blow blow that blue line up, basically. And the way you do that is, one, training people as they go in um, for psychological evaluations on an annual basis um, to make sure, you know, not just for the the public's safety but for their own safety and well-being, Um, Because if they don't belong on that job anymore, then they should be finding a different job. Um, And for body cameras, um, 24-7, basically, you have to wear your body camera any instances that camera needs to be on. Um, Mm -hmm. When it comes to body cameras, it's not just uh, enough to have them. Because what you're seeing is when the investigations come through, you have... Um, the police either turned off their camera or right. the police you know, department holds the footage back and does not release it. So I understand their standpoint for not releasing the footage until um, the, the trial. I can understand that argument while well, I don't agree with it, but that's not the issue. The issue is they will let the police officer, when making their report, review the footage first. So, if you pull your gun on somebody and shoot them, and you say, Oh, they had a gun, and it was in their right hand, and I saw it, and I was in, in fear of my life, I was in danger for my life, so I shot, and then the footage shows that they didn't have a gun, and maybe they had a cell phone in their back pocket, which is completely different than what happened, you are allowing that police officer to review the footage and say, Oh, wait, I'm going to put in my report. I saw a gun in his back left pocket, not in his right hand, and I feared for my life. So now you have mm-hmm. you're relying on the honesty of one person who has a lot to lose to write and write something in their report that's actually true. So what we have right now is basically we have a, a court understanding that cops, when in court, are not questioned in their duties unless evidence is provided to show that they're making a questionable action. So I believe Mm -hmm. all people in court should be treated equally as human beings, meaning cops shouldn't have some special privilege that they can go and say, oh, well, I'm a cop, so that makes me a better person. We've seen that's not the
5: case. We've seen it every
4: single job. Wall Street, politicians, we've seen everywhere. That's not the case. We need to treat everyone Mm -hmm. on the same level as humans. So... When it goes into this reporting process, so they need to write their report and then they can view the footage um, afterwards. But that footage should be released immediately to a citizen's oversight committee and uh, let them view the footage and not hold it, you know, until a different time or a different trial or withhold it just because or it, you know, sits on a back shelf and never gets released. That footage needs to be released. Now, like I mentioned at the beginning, I can understand why they don't want to release it before a trial because they have to get jurors. And if you have no jury pool that, you know, has not seen the video, then that that can be a problem for a fair trial. But at the same time,
5: Uh, any major
4: case, people have already made up their mind beforehand anyway, and it's very hard to find somebody who hasn't. So like cases like the Scott Peterson case, whether he was guilty or not, it would be very mm-hmm. hard to get a fair trial, so it's, mm-hmm. it's stuff like that where, where, the public is going to have an opinion either way. So I think it would be a better idea to actually just release the footage. But the most important part of that reform would be to not let the police, you know, watch that footage before they've written their report. And unfortunately, we see over and over again that cops aren't brought to justice. And the worst, no,
0: they're not. They're not convicted of the crimes. I mean, why are some somebody... of these why are these cops that are are clearly guilty of murder not being convicted of murder? I don't understand how this is possible. I see the same footage that the jurors do. How is is it not clear at this point? And the other aspect of that is why are the good police officers allowing in their midst these guys that are doing this stuff? They should be the first to say, hey, I don't want you to be my peer. You're not worthy of this job. You're not worthy of the public trust.
5: Mm -hmm. So
0: I... It's a very frustrating situation, and I just feel like here we are in 2018, and I haven't seen a lot of improvement. And I don't yeah. see, um, I don't see the will. It seems with the folks that would need to have the will to change it, having the will.
4: Yeah, and that's the thing, and that's where community oversight um, comes into the right. into the process. But you have to give those community community oversight groups actual power to make changes. If you just have an oversight right. group that meets and doesn't have any power to make changes and there's nothing that they can do to fix the process we actually had one of those in sacramento and the lead guy i forget his name but the lead guy actually quit the citizens overship uh, oversight committee because of that because there, mm-hmm. he couldn't affect any real change he had no power to do that i mean because we right. had our problems up here in sacramento and this is another thing that michael Bracamontes brings up a lot is Currently it is illegal to use the maximum of force uh, maximum force possible instead of using the minimum needed.
5: so mm. what happens
4: is the cops go immediately to that maximum force because they feel that that's what's necessary and that's what they need to do, and they won't be questioned for it okay so if yeah that's there's something wrong you, with that yeah, if you have to justify the force you used in court and and there's no basically open door to using maximum force, then that's a whole different setup.
5: But
4: currently that's not the way it is. They use the maximum force because they're allowed to.
0: Yeah, and, you know, there's also this argument about the militarization of our police departments. They're now buying all of this, you know, we were talking earlier about the arms dealing. Well, now some of this stuff is ending up in our police forces because there's simply a surplus of it out there. And, you know, you also have... uh, which this blows my mind, we also have police uh, officers that are going to train with the IDF in Israel, which I don't understand. The IDF is a military force. Why would our police officers, our peace officers, why would they need to train with foreign military? I, You know, yeah. it's this, this, this compounding the problem, I think.
4: Yeah, I mean, the police should be police. They should be members of the communities that they serve. They should right. be representative of those communities. They shouldn't have, you know, armor on that you get scared yeah. seeing them like they're a member of the SWAT team, but they're just a beat cop or just out at a protest. I mean, we actually, with all the, all the bad things that, you know, have come out about Sacramento PD, I've been to several different uh, protests and marches. I have shut down the street um, on Martin Luther King day. We shut down J street last year and this year, um, with a march and protest all the way down to the con- from from basically it's I don't know if you're familiar with Sacramento but we basically yeah sh- shut down several blocks as we marched down the street to the Capitol so that's mm-hmm. a Black Lives Matter march with members of Black Lives Matter walking down the street right. and other people joining in like me and shut literally shutting down traffic and we haven't had any issues at those protests with the police you know abusing anyone.
5: But we also right. have
4: this great organization of uh, legal observers that are at all the events as well,
5: and mm. they're out
4: there taking notes and watching So, So while we have had a lot of abuses and a lot of issues with how the treat, the police are treating homeless people, um, right. you know, I, I have to give them a little bit of credit because they have actually acted, as far as I've seen, they've acted professional in those instances that I was a witness Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, I give credit where it's due. I mean, you can give credit to people like Rand Paul for being anti-war and pro, pro right. cannabis legalization. So, <laughs> right.
5: I give credit where
4: it's due, but then, you know, on other issues that are serious concerns, that doesn't mean you're off, the, you know, you're off, you know. The hook, yeah. Of, of, yeah, off the hook.
0: Right. Uh, so, another issue that we have in our criminal justice system that I think is in deep need of reform is uh, ending money bail. I think a lot of folks don't realize how many poor people end up without not being convicted, they haven't even gone to trial yet, but end up uh, spending time in jail simply because they can't post bail. They don't have the money to. And it seems to me that there must be another way to get around the situation because I don't think it's fair that you have, have you know folks that are literally in jail for two or three years and they haven't even been convicted of a crime. Their only crime is being poor. So what are your thoughts on how we reform that part of the system?
4: So I'm um, for a cash-free bail system or ending money bail. I'm 100% behind that. Um, if you actually look at the current um, bail system, no matter how much you set the bail at, if a rich person can afford that and they can get out, that's no guarantee yeah. that, one, they're going to return to court, or two, they're not going to commit another crime. So one of our uh, latest shootings up in Northern California was actually a guy who was in jail. He paid $300,000 in bail. He got out of jail, and then he went and committed this shooting. The way to approach it is the the seriousness or the violence of the crime that you're accused of should be based on, on whether you're going to get out or not. So if you're basically, if you're suspected of murder and it looks like you did it, I'm not for letting those people out of jail, bail, you know, scot-free. But that doesn't mean we have a cash bail system in place where they can pay. Because now now let's say, like, someone goes to jail on a murder charge, and they're sitting there, and there's a cash bail system, like mentioned in the shooting. So they're basically, it's almost completely sure that they're the murderer, but they got Mm a million dollars. So they get out of jail, they go to Mexico. They escape justice. So we need, to, we need to make sure that we're not allowing those people to escape justice just because they're rich. So reforming right. the system means reforming it in, in ways that don't necessarily need a replacement system. It's, I mean, you're, you're, get, you're innocent until proven guilty, and cash bill basically makes you guilty if you're poor, like you were mentioning earlier. And now you're going to lose your job. You're not going to be able to pay your bills, lose your house, lose your car, and once you get out of that system your your life is basically over. You completely have to start over. And and that's not fair. I mean I I wouldn't have the money yeah. to pay a bill. I mean I'd have to call my friends as well, um, to try right. and get enough money to pay a bill.
0: Right. And in the meantime, if you have somebody that's innocent, um, they've now spent two or three years in a system that's very brutal. And I don't know that they come out of that unscathed, you know what I'm saying? They're now they're now most definitely a changed human being.
4: Yeah, and it's not just the losing the job and all that stuff. It's the fact that they now have this, this view of society as society is unjust. So right. they've gone into jail. They know they're innocent. Other people know they're innocent. They go into jail. They spend two years in jail. And, and then they say, oh, we messed up you're innocent, you don't, you know, you, you shouldn't be here, and they release them. Well, now they have a, a completely different view of the justice system, and rightly so.
5: That's
0: exactly right. And oftentimes, these, uh, the issues that are arrested for, we're not talking about violent felonies, we're talking about smaller crimes. And the backlog in the court system is such that they're not getting speedy trial dates which is why you'll see situations where some of them are spending the uh, length of time in the jail system. So obviously we need to, I think, reform the money bail system. And I also think we need to do something about the length of time that uh, that they're waiting to, to, you know, to go to trial, because especially if they're in the jail system, it's just not fair. It's certainly not the way our founding fathers intended it to be.
5: So yeah. you talked
0: about... Uh, You you brought up Rand Paul, who is someone that I agree with on a a handful of things, like you said, and he's somebody that I'm vehemently disgusted by on other things. (laughs) But one of the things I do agree with Rand Paul on is uh, invasion of privacy issues in the country. I think the Patriot Act has been very damaging. Um, The NSA has been very damaging. We can go down the list of things. Um, That are problematic. But one of the biggest disappointments I've had with the Obama administration is that I actually believed in his campaign promise that he was going to reel these things in. He did not do that. And in fact, he's made them worse. Now that's been handed to Trump. What are your thoughts on this?
4: And that goes back to the uh, tribalism or gang mentality that we have in our party system where we vote for anyone based on their party and not based on who they are as a person or what they believe in or what they actually vote for. So my Mm -hmm. main opponent, of course, that I'm running uh, in this race against is Dianne Feinstein. She voted for the Patriot Act. She voted for FISA courts, spying on Americans, all that stuff she voted yes on. So she's very mm-hmm. much part of that you know, that surveillance system. She's very pro-surveillance and has no issues with that. And she is a, a Democrat in the most progressive, arguably the most progressive state in the nation. So right. It, it goes back to, again, it goes back to who we're voting for. Um, three of her top ten donors, uh, and this is just the last time I checked, um, three of our top ten donors are military-industrial complex, um, two are yeah. different factors, so it goes back to that. Um, it's just, when it comes down to it, it's just the, it's just the way the money flows is, is where the legislation goes, is that every time we see a social ill that has an obvious solution, we think, okay, well, this can be fixed very easily. Let's just do X. But then we go and talk to the politicians who can go actually write legislation and vote on it and we find out that they're Mm -hmm. being funded by the corporation that is standing in the way of that getting fixed. So the surveillance thing is actually one of them. Another thing I'd like to mention though on the surveillance issue is I've actually I do a lot of posting of of different, you know, subjects on social media. And one of the ones that gets the least retweets or attention is surveillance issues. So I, really? I, I, I'm getting concerned that the American public is getting used to the surveillance or has mm-hmm. basically thrown in the towel on the surveillance issues saying, like, it's too late or we, we can't fix it or whatever their mentality is or just we have bigger fish to fry. Whatever it is, right. it seems like when you bring up stuff like the Patriot Act and, and phone tapping of American citizens, People just don't really, you know, fly off the handle and get upset about that or, or anything of that nature. They just kinda like, you know, sigh it off and just go on with their life. And I'm starting to get concerned that, that it is no right. longer a concern to the general public because you I don't I don't see a lot of movement to stop that anymore. You know, we need to make it an issue and it goes back to who we elect. Are we gonna elect people like Feinstein who has voted for this stuff in the past? on uh, mm-hmm. not even a promise that she'll stop because she hasn't even done that.
0: Right. No, I, I agree. Uh, it seems that – but it is worrisome to me that it, it does seem that the public has gotten used to it and they don't think it's a problem. And it's probably one of the biggest problems that we're facing because it's a cornerstone to our democracy. And I think people really need to be more concerned about it because the surveillance states, it's huge. And it's not worth the trade-off. It hasn't made us safer from terrorism.
4: So there's actually a, a lot of other issues that go with this same subject. I mean, Google probably has more information about you than the government does. Right. I don't so use Google whatever. for
0: this reason. So yeah, I'm with so you on that. I do not use Google.
4: You know, they have agreements and stipulations right. and whatnot. And they buy and sell your data. So your data is out there. I mean, there's reports that come out once in a while that, I, like I say, people sigh off or, or just yawn and go about their day where, yes, we need to be worried about, you know, the government having too much information, but what about corporations having too much information? What about one corporation having information about maybe you have some health issue and then your insurance company getting a hold of that information and either raising your rates or throwing you off your health care? Right because they right. found that out through another source. I mean, there's serious right. implications there and and we're basically we're freely giving away all this information about ourselves and there's no checks on it when it comes to corporations.
0: No, you're right and I do think that Google and Facebook are the two worst the two worst ones for that and I I don't use Google for anything. I use uh for my search engine I use DuckDuckGo for this reason. I'm a good kind of paranoid. I have a VPN. <laughs> I don't. I do have a Facebook page, but i never. I post very little stuff on there. Um, and and you're not wrong on that. I I think just across the board, we've we've gotten so used to the surveillance state that it's become the new norm in a way. And that's that's a little bit. It's a little bit worrisome. That's that's the scary thing that worries me. I'm not. I'm not okay with what's happened with Guantanamo Bay. I don't think anybody should be held without due process. I think habeas corpus is a thing that we should not. Be on a slippery slope with in any capacity. I was very disturbed when uh, the Obama administration drone bombed an American citizen simply because he was, a, you know, quote unquote, suspected terrorist. He might have well have been. I don't know, but he was still due a day in court. He's an American citizen. You don't just go over to another country and bomb somebody.
2: Of course, the targeting of any American raises constitutional issues that are not present in other strikes, which is why my administration. Submitted information about Alaki to the Department of Justice months before Alaki was killed, and briefed the Congress before this strike as well. But the high threshold that we've set for taking legal, uh, lethal action applies to all potential terrorist targets, regardless of whether or not they are American citizens. This threshold respects the inherent dignity of every human life. Alongside the decision to put our men and women in uniform in harm's way, the decision to use force against individuals or groups, even against a sworn enemy of the United States, is the hardest thing I do as president. But these decisions must be made, given my responsibility to protect the American.
0: And this is the kind of stuff that that's been going on, and I find it very troublesome. On environmental issues, uh, do you think it will ever be possible to ban fracking, or is this something else that we're adding to our new norms?
4: So, California is the most uh, progressive state in the nation, as we discussed, and that's arguable, but basically, that's what most people (laughs) view California as, we are number three in fracking in the nation. Yeah, I know. So. So, as number three in fracking as the most progressive state, that tells you a lot about the grasp and the grip that oil companies have over not only Sacramento but just politics in general. Um, right. When you find the most, um, uh, or the biggest opponents towards towards bills that will affect uh, oil companies negatively, are are directly you know correlate to the 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 people are accepting the most donations from oil companies.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: So we have that issue here. I mean, it comes back to money and politics. Um, do I ever? Do I think it'll ever be shut down? Yeah, but if we let the free market decide when it's going to be shut down, it's going to be when every single last drop of oil is monetized and we have completely destroyed our environment. So we need to step in and, and make changes now. With right. The current Democrats and especially corporate Democrats, specifically, is who I'm talking about. And Republicans, we have an office now we're not seeing any change because, like I said, they're getting that money. So when we have the leadership of the Democratic Party, you know, getting on the stump and and declaring Trump, you know, all these horrible things because he wants to increase offshore drilling in federal waters in California, and we have multiple Mm -hmm. oil rigs in state and municipal waters in California that we could shut down tomorrow, it's very hypocritical. I agree. yeah, and we're fracking under schools and poor neighborhoods and even some rich neighborhoods. We have oil rigs in between houses in L.A., and then we're yeah. talking about you know pollution coming from other countries. That's just completely hypocritical. California, mm-hmm. like like I'm, I sponsored you know, or endorsed the OFF Act. Like I mentioned earlier, the Tulsi Gabbard bill to get to 100% renewable energy by 2035. California, we could probably do it by 2025 if we really yeah. wanted to. So we have enough solar energy we're producing right now in California that we're selling it to Arizona and Nevada. Right. So we have a surplus. So that means that the the technology is there, the the means are all there, it's a political will that's not there. So we need to get politicians in office with a spine to stand up to corporations, not accept their donations. And actually, you know, It's it's not time to keep pumping. It's not time to find new ways to get oil. It's time to keep it in the ground, leave it alone, shut down, not only not build more pipelines through Native American land, but shut down existing pipelines and shut it all down and go towards completely 100% renewable energy.
0: So what other areas of your platform um, did you want to discuss that we haven't talked about yet? Are there any other Um, areas?
4: I think we've actually covered quite a few of them. I I wanted to bring up um, unions. Um, We talked a little bit about unions, but part of my Mm -hmm. platform is card check neutrality on the federal level. I'm not sure if you're familiar with card check, but basically it's an electoral process where you go to the boss and say, we're gonna hold an election to uh, form a union, and we're gonna pass out ballots, basically, or cards, and people mark, I wanna be in a union. I don't want to be in a union, whichever one, sign the card and turn it in. You count up the cards. If there's 51% want a union, then you get a union. That sounds great, right? So that's actually currently a system that unions use to unionize. Unfortunately, as we know, employers don't just sit back and say, oh, yeah, that's great. You just go ahead and go through this process, and we'll let democracy work for the people, and we'll accept any outcome. Now, you have people like I believe it was Alabama, not to pick on Alabama today, but I believe it was <laughs> Alabama where the Nissan plant there tried to unionize and the Nissan organization bought airtime to air racist ads saying that if the if the Nissan plant unionized, then workers at that plant would be out picking cotton.
5: Oh, this my is God. This was actually an
4: ad on the radio. Someone recorded it. The radio wow. you know, station, everything, with their cell phone in their car, saying this is what they're playing on the radio.
2: If they get up there at Nissan, they will force Nissan out of Mississippi. And you Nissan people better listen because, you know, you were out there hoeing corn and picking cotton and plowing fields or digging ditches before, and you're going to go right back to it because the union is
5: not going to take care of it. You got that right, here. And blasted it across the
4: street. So not only is it disgusting, but all those jobs are automated anyway. So people don't even have, you know, that to fall right. back on. So, so right. they know that, too. So they were threatened so much that the, the plant ended up not unionizing. They lost, I believe it was like two-thirds voted against the union because they were put in that situation where they were so afraid.
5: Right. So, right. I mean, we need
4: protections passed on the federal level to actually put this system in place. Whereas now we can we can do it all we want, but the, if the employer doesn't accept the outcome or bites the outcome tooth and nail the whole way, then there's no way to do it. Um, also, um, employers will go after, and I'm sure this is like preaching to the choir for you, but if you want to organize a union, say you're a Walmart employee, you want to organize a union at Walmart, so you start doing that and the employer cannot fire you for trying to unionize. But then, if you're late back from your lunch one minute, or you look funny in, in certain right-to-work states, then they right. can fire you, or they can fire you for no reason, just at will. They, yeah, they, yeah, at will. And California is actually an at-will state.
5: We are at will. So.
4: So, yeah, so they can fire you for whatever reason or no reason they want. So they, then it's your duty to go to the court and prove that they fired you for union organizing. And then they bring out your personnel file where they followed you right. and started organizing and said, well, he was a minute late this day. Um, yeah. He put this thing on the wrong shelf. You know, he didn't do his hair or something Right. Some stupid, and they develop a report.
5: Mhm. Yeah,
0: no, it's a problem. and it's very frustrating because we went through a period of time in the mid century where workers were doing so much better than they are now. And we've just given up ground, given up ground, given up ground. And it's going to be so hard to regain the ground that we gave up. And I think uh, with the recent tax reform bill, you know, that's not really reform. That's what they call this.
6: They gave another
0: large uh, tax cut to corporations. This is another handout. You know, you already have corporations that are getting away literally with so many atrocious things. And now, you know, they have effective rates where they're paying seven percent Now, God knows what they'll pay next to nothing or negative rates. They'll continue to so offshore. Are, yeah, they're
4: already paying negative rates. And some of them are Exactly beyond what they owed.
0: Right. And, you know, another thing that goes on is the they're, they off, so the earnings that they make if they're a multinational corporation, the earnings that they make in a different area get to they can leave that money there. and oftentimes what they'll do is they'll let it build up, build up, build up, build up because they don't want to repatriate it back into the United States because then they have to pay taxes on it so they let it build up until Congress comes along and hopefully this will be something you'll work on. Congress will come along and they'll uh pass a bill saying, "Well, if you repatriate all this money, you bring this, all this money back, we're going to give you this great deal where you're only going to pay 4 or 5%." And they know that this is going to happen. So they go through this cycle time and time again. And it's one more way that they get out of paying for you know, they get out of paying their fair share.
5: Of the carrot
4: and stick approach to when it comes to the corporations, I'm definitely the stick. I say we should um, make you know close all the loopholes and make them repay right. all that money at the current tax rate. I'm not yeah. for um, giving someone a reward for being dishonest or being unethical mm-hmm. or maybe even breaking breaking the law. So we should bring all that money back, repatriated at the uh, at the full taxable amount that they should have paid anyway have that money go towards social programs and, again, actually benefit society and benefit the people who need it here in the U.S.
0: Right. You know, and they, they've literally, these corporations, and the way they've chased the lower, the lower dollar in, as far as labor, you know, they go to the country where they're going to get the cheapest labor, and this has been going on for years and years. They've been doing the same thing with tax havens. So they'll they'll close up shop if they have to all of a sudden, like Ireland's a great example. Well, now we have to pay tax. Okay, we're going to close up shop in Ireland. We're going to t- go to Panama. They go to the next place, and oftentimes they don't actually have anything there. It's just this this PO box at some lawyer's office. I mean, there's no real. It's like it's such a ridiculous shell game that they play, but they get away with it. And it's it's gotten worse and worse. I think um, what over eighty percent of the new wealth that was created last year went to the one percent,
5: which is
4: an
0: insane number.
4: And the one percent uh, actually got a decrease in wealth.
0: Oh, absolutely. This has been going on for years. It's it's a problem. Um so many problems, David. <laughs>
5: just, so so
4: it's it comes, overwhelming. What it comes down to at the end is like a lot of people will look at my platform and Bernie Sanders platform and all these other progressive platforms and will say, you know, these are huge, bold programs, you know, and and maybe we can pass, you know, one of them like single payer, but we can't pass them all. And my response to that is no, we have to pass them all. All these things are intermingled. They're all they all basically have to be passed at the same time to fix society as we see it. We can't just you know put off renewable energy. Like we have a bill in California that wants to get renewable energy by like twenty fifty or twenty forty or something stupid.
5: Yeah, is ridiculous. Yeah.
4: Uh, Come on, yeah, we can do better. We could do this like like I said earlier. We could do this by twenty twenty five. But they're right. pushing it off that long. So if we need mm-hmm. big things and we need things now, like like I mentioned, climate change is one of the biggest things. We need you know protections for workers and good wages. People are suffering right. now. We don't need to wait and and basically take the right. incrementalist approach that we've been taking forever.
0: Yeah, it's not working uh, because we gave away so much. You know, if you go back to the. You know, clearly we had other problems. I'm not suggesting that this was like a perfect time. But at least um, under FDR, you had social programs that were expanding. You had corporations paying much higher tax rates that were funding everything that needed to be funded from infrastructure to, um, you know, improving the lives for poor people. And we've just given away so many of these things when we should not have given up any of those things, but instead added to those things, things like civil rights. Um, pay equality for women. We we could have continued expanding on those progressive platforms, and instead we made a trade off to corporations. I think the Democratic Party had a turning point in the early '70s when they stopped. You know, they started taking more and more money from corporations and less and less money from unions, and it really made a difference in the platform. It made a difference in the direction that they took and what they represented. And then the entire time they were doing this, they were still selling this idea that they were they were the left that they were fighting for workers' rights and and things, but that was not the case. And I think it's, at least, the the good news is at least that's become very evident to a lot of voters at this particular junction. They're seeing this for what it is, and I'm glad to see this awakening happening in the country. And I think uh, progressive candidates like yourself, um, Gail McLaughlin, who I spoke with this last week, I mean, there's a lot of folks running for office right now that have really great ideas, really great progressive ideas that are very much the need, the need to change. Uh, and I'm glad to see that this happening because I don't think 10 years ago you would have seen this wave, you know, sure. and thank, we can thank Bernie Sanders I think for a lot of that for just, you know, kind of getting Definitely. people to see. And,
4: and the American people in general, we tend to stay asleep until, you know, big stuff starts happening and then we wake up and we make big changes and then we fall asleep again, unfortunately. Right. So I, I, I'm,
5: no I'm more falling that. asleep.
4: Yeah, exactly. I'm hoping that, that we don't have to wait for things to get so horrible that we finally take a stand. We need to do it now. And I think that's Bernie's message because, I mean, in our history, we've had workers shot in the streets by, by security or right, right. the police working for, working for the, the employers and literally murdered in the street in cold blood because they wanted to go on strike or protest that's against right. their employer. I mean, that's, that's in right. our history. And if these, yep. you know, Supreme Court cases pass where we lose our pensions and we lose our unions, then we're going to get back to a point where people are going to be rioting and protesting yeah. the street again, and it's going to look just like it did in the past. And I'm really hoping that this doesn't happen. I'm really hoping that basically, I call it the Bernie approach wins the, wins the day where we can have a nonviolent you know, reformation of government, because otherwise I really am worried that we will have, you know, people so desperate that they turn to violence to try and make things better. And that obviously never makes things better in the end.
0: Right. I agree. Uh, So now if people want to donate to your campaign, where is the best place for them to do that at?
4: Um, DavidforCalifornia.com. Just go straight to the website, and you can find the donate link up at the top. If you're on mobile, it's a contribute button on the main page. Um, that is David for the the word for F O R, not the number. Um, so DavidforCalifornia.com. I am on Twitter and Facebook. You can link both of those through the website itself. So that's where I send everyone.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, great conversation. Uh, good to hear all the good progressive things that you're supporting and working on. And keep us posted on your campaign.
4: Yeah. And I wanted to actually give a shout out to somebody. Uh, it's sure. Uh, yeah. I wanted to give a shout out to Seema Hernandez in Texas.
0: Oh, yeah. I don't know if yes.
4: you, have you heard of Seema?
0: I do. I follow her on Twitter. She follows me. I'd actually like to get her to come on the show.
4: Great. So uh Seema just lost her primary election in Texas, but it's a bigger story than that. So yeah, it is a bigger Warp story is is that basically the the guy who won the the won the election, the primary election in Texas and who will now face, face Ted Cruz has taken, you know, hundreds of thousands of corporate dollars. A yeah. typical corporate candidate says one thing, you know, and does another or just doesn't even bother saying it. He's not for a lot of progressive issues that you would want. No, he's not. On the other hand, SEMA was that progressive. She's a democratic socialist. She stands for single-payer health care. She stands for all the issues you'd want to see, you know, tuition-free college, living wage for all workers, uh, the OFF Act. She stood for all of these things. But the biggest part of that story is SEMA got, and I got it in front of me here, and it's got a map up as well for the election results. She got two, 245,949 votes. That's 23.7% right. of the total vote in the Democratic primary in a state the size of Texas. And that's mm-hmm. not even the full story. The full story is she campaigned on a few thousand dollars to get that many votes. Right. So she got right. almost no, think- half as much as Beto and used almost no money to get there. So that's a very hopeful thing for our future as a progressive movement.